Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. First offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Dr. Andrea Bowens-Jones, and she's a trainer, she's a coach, she's a speaker, she's a consultant, she's pretty much anything she wants to be, it seems. (laughs) (laughs) She does a lot of stuff, and she's also an advocate for STEM and also for diversity and inclusion. I really wanted to speak more to her about her background, basically how she came to what she's doing now and what she would like to do in the future. So welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Dr. Bones-Jones. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure being here today. And so sorry again, I'm going to apologize in advance because I know you're recording it, that you see two of me up on the screen. So <laughs> so I'm excited to be able to share my story. So oh. I appreciate the invitation. No, no, no problem. Hey, the more the merrier, right? <laughs> <laughs> so from the bit of research I did on you, I saw that you got your undergraduate degree in chemistry. What was the motivation for getting that degree? Well, uh, I've always loved science, and I grew up in um, Alabama, uh, in the South, playing outside, playing in dirt and mud and all those things. And my first chemistry set, I call it uh, with quotations, was the kitchen, uh, a blender, where I would, when my mom wasn't looking, blend up anything in the house, didn't know that I was doing formulation work at that point. My first test subject was my younger sister who tasted every concoction I made. So I think a lot of my love and curiosity for creating things started when I was a kid. And I just think once I had that first high school chemistry class, I was hooked. I was like, this is it. This is for me. Well, I hope the things that you were concocting in the kitchen were edible. If not, (laughs) your poor sister. (laughs) She survived. She survived. And I can't say they were all delicious, but definitely edible. (laughs) Okay. But I also saw that you you ended up not just stopping at an undergraduate degree. You actually got graduate degrees as well. What was the motivation for that? Actually, my undergraduate program was designed to increase the number of minorities that have higher Uh, uh, education degrees. So from day one, uh, stepping on campus, and I went to Clark Atlanta University here in Atlanta, Georgia, and we were kind of coached to continue on to get PhDs um, in the program. My program was designed to have get a master's in five years. So when every other student was maybe outside enjoying everything, I was taking extra courses and Uh, double load because you basically finish your undergraduate in about three and a three and a half years and you're already starting your um, master's work at the same time so I think I already had the mindset going in that I I knew that I was going to leave with a master's but it was once I started uh, having those first few internships and I interned at 3M company and I saw that for where I interned the people that were the bosses had PhDs and so even though uh, my program wasn't designed to give me a PhD at the end, uh, it sealed the deal because I knew I wanted to be a boss. And in, in those days, 
the leaders of the organizations all had PhDs. I said, well, I guess I have to go get one. And that is a true story. <laughs> I wanted to be a boss. What was your motivation for wanting to be a boss? Oh, man, that just goes back to probably kid, uh, childhood. Uh, just always wanting to be in charge, wanting to be uh, a leader out front, um, wanting to be able to navigate, which I now know is navigate the careers of others. But uh, the desire, you probably could ask my childhood friends and probably my sisters, like, why does she always have to be the boss? If we played school, I was the teacher. If we played anything else, I was just always, always made myself the boss. And I think I had it in my mind if that's what I was supposed to be. So if I was going into science, I wanted to be in a position where I could be in some kind of leadership role. So then you, you finally do finish your, your schooling, both undergraduate and graduate, but I'm guessing mm -hmm. the first job you weren't you weren't the boss. It it probably nope. took you some time. <laughs> it took you some time to get to, to get there. So what, by the time you got to being the boss, was it what you thought it would be? No, of course not. It never is. <laughs> because I think when you look on the um, outside of things, you see the level, you see the influence, you see uh, for women, it may be the clothes. And for me, it was designer shoes and maybe the handbag. It was the persona that uh, that role kind of um, demonstrated. And it was something that I could see myself in. And I had a cousin that was on, a distant cousin who was in leadership in IT way back when I was probably in middle school. And I saw the kind of car she drove and the kind of clothes she wore. And I think a lot of it had to do with the physical appearances. But by the time I got started promoting and my career started growing um, in corporate, I had a family then. I had three daughters. Uh, I was a wife. And the, with every choice that we make, we have to give up something to get. So the pursuit of leadership roles comes at a cost. You got to be willing to travel. And at least early on, even before the promotion, being willing to travel, being willing to maybe even move overseas. And I was at a point in my life that I wasn't willing to, to kind of make those choices. So what I found is that it, I didn't have to have a title in order to be a leader. And I could be a leader for whatever level that I was at. So maybe you know, I wasn't a VP, but go ahead. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's funny you mentioned all of this because I had a former guest and it, it sounds your your story sounds rather similar. So she actually was at IBM, and she was and she eventually got a leadership role where she was managing people, and she enjoyed it. But then she had her children, and that kind of it, it interfered, I guess, with the with her raising her children herself as opposed to having you know other people help her to do so. And so she dropped yeah. out of the workforce for a number of years, and then she came back, and then she realized that she wasn't as into it, <laughs> I guess, as, <laughs> as she was before she, before she had her mm -hmm. children. So she actually ended up going into an entirely different field, STEM education. So just hearing you talk about you know, the, the issues that you had working at a company and, and kind of having to figure out how to, to be the leader that you want to be, but still manage having your children and your mm -hmm. family, I guess that's, that's something that a, a lot of people have to deal with. And well, obviously you, you figured out a, a way to do so. But I uh, think the choice is personal. There are some women that made it to very high levels, some that I was mentored by, um, and they had children and they had husbands and they were managing it all, but they had to make choices to do that. And I think for every person, when you get to that crossroad in your career and you have to decide which way to go, you have to make a choice and that choice has to align with your values and where you see yourself as a wife, a mother, a professional and all those things. 
So I don't think it has to be that way for every person, but I, th I do think it's a personal choice you have to make. At some point then you start working for yourself. Is that yes. something that you had always planned on doing or is that something that just kind of happened? Uh, never planned on it. Are you kidding me? This is hard work to be out on your own. No, I think uh, it was another one of those things. My career had reached a crossroad. And by the time I left Procter & Gamble, I was at a section head level. Uh, so I was managing um, engineers and scientists and, and navigating their careers. I love what I did. The company was going through a reorg and oh, I could boy. go to another <laughs> organization. Yeah. yeah, but my, my job was going away, but my position at the company was not. But, and I think if it had been two years earlier, I would have jumped all over it. Oh my God, you know, I can go to this new area and I'll be able to lead over there. And it's exactly what I wanted to do. But I think as a course of time, I had changed so much like the um, example that you had given about your previous guest. I was then in a different point in my life. And I found that the things that I loved, I had developed a STEM program for minority youth to pursue uh, so that they'd be exposed to opportunities in STEM. I had uh, was doing a lot of things outside of the company in terms of leadership, um, training and development, training in my church, training volunteer leaders. Uh, I was spending a lot of time coaching my, my own team uh, for success and found that that was the thing that really made me excited. I still love science and still love innovation, I didn't have to be at the bench anymore. I loved people. And so when given the opportunity, I could stay and continue on with my career and probably still be doing well there. Or I could follow that little tiny still voice inside that said, this is your opportunity. And um, I'm one of the kind of people who I don't want to look back on my life and have all these lists of regrets. If there's an opportunity to make a jump and change and experience it, I'd rather jump at it, try it, fail. If, if that's what happened, then regret even trying. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that, Dr. Bones Jones. It's, it's living that with, with that kind of regret, it's just, it can be, it, it's so eat sad. Yeah, it absolutely, absolutely, it absolutely can eat at you. And, you, and at least for myself, I, I see, you, see, you kind of see it every day, those type of people that, yeah. you know, they've been at their jobs however long, and they, they don't like it. They don't think there's anything else that they can do. And they just they just stay there and they're just miserable people, people you don't really want to be yes. around. So <laughs> it's good yes. that you you have the you have the at least the the belief in yourself that you could leave and then you know try something else and you know see where where it took you. So when it yeah. comes to the work that you currently do, is it so I mean I mentioned you're a coach, you're a trainer, you're a consultant, you're a speaker, but I'm sure you have to do you focus on, on certain areas in, in, in those in those endeavors? Yeah, um, primarily, um, I, from a consultant standpoint, I focus more heavily on um, diversity and inclusion in STEM. So really working with organizations that are some kind of innovation or STEM-based, increasing the number of minorities there. So whether it be from helping with pipeline, helping them look at their pipeline, uh, helping them improve their metrics of their programs, outreach programs, which I've done through nonprofits, or it could be uh, providing training for, um, uh, for their young, younger um, population, like what I do with the cybersecurity organization. I do that. Um, but even though it sounds like a lot of lanes I play in, it is the exact same thing across. It is all about uh, empowering people to reach their uh, potential. 
So whether it comes through training, meaning I'm doing it with a group, or it comes through doing it one-on-one through coaching, or whether I'm engaging an audience as a keynote speaker, I'm still empowering people to reach their potential. I just happen to have a bent towards STEM, and that has a lot to do with my technical background, but I do it across whether it is manufacturing, consumer products companies, like where the industry that I came from, all the way to nonprofits and women empowerment organizations. But um, the name of my company is IDG Vision, Inspire, Develop, Grow is what the IDG stands for. And that's what I do, I inspire people by lighting, igniting that little flame inside, uh, developing them by giving them the tools. And that's where the workshops and the trainings and all that stuff comes into and growing them. Um, So growing them to reach their potential because if they do that and they're leaders, the ripple effect is uh, enormous because then they become better equipped leaders, better equipped leaders equip organizations, which equip other leaders and it grows from there. Nice. When it comes to the the companies that you work with, obviously every company has a culture in and of its own. The trainings Mm -hmm. that you provide to these companies, does it have to change just based on the culture of the company or or is it pretty standard? I wouldn't call it standard. Um, I would say that for the companies that I work with, and I'll give an example, I've worked with hospitals. So even though I'm not um, in the, have a background in the medical field, um, but still it overlaps quite well with many of the technical folks that are there. You know, we took organic, we took biology, those kind of things. Um, It is about first me understanding their culture um, second, me understanding where are their pinch points. What is it that is keeping senior manager management up at night when it's related to their people? So whether it is communication issues, or whether it is lack of leadership um, at the um, lower levels, where, or if it is about getting the emerging leaders, building up their competency as leaders before they're promoted, so that they can have a much more um, cohesive organization. Then building the learning experience around those issues to better equip people. So I think it it is not a cookie cutter approach uh, to each organization that I interact with. It It does take time sitting down, understanding what their needs are, and then me designing the program to meet their needs. So when you're when you have developed the the program or the, you know, the strategy for the the company to use, is that where your work ends, or do you do any kind of I guess follow up to see if they're actually implementing what you had suggested? Yeah, um, I wish it were that easy. Yes, I do follow up. Uh, so I do follow up when I finish some organizations I work with as long as a year. So I may send their leaders through. Um, a series of trainings over a six month period, then they may go into um, what I would call more like mastermind groups. So they form peer peer groups and they continue to kind of use what they've learned in the, in the workshop setting in their everyday life and see it come to life and then have follow-ups with me. So yes, it depends on the level of engagement with the organization. I can follow up on a frequency or it could be six-month intervals uh, between the follow-ups. Interesting. And then the, the companies that you work with, is it more of a, is it difficult to convince them that even your type of training is, is necessary? And, and if so, what kind of, how do you, I guess, figure out how to, I guess, convince them that it is? 
Yeah, the convincing parts uh, can can be a bit salesy. I primarily work with organizations that pretty much already know they have an issue. So uh, the sales, the selling, selling part is not about me selling on you need it. It is about what separates me as a small firm um, versus going to something larger. So many of the organizations are already out shopping for something. They know they have a need. They know they have people issues, but their challenge is who is the right consultant to work with. And so that's where I spend the time to build the relationships with it. I think what separates me a lot from some of the other ones is uh, coming in with my technical background. Um, So I'm not the classic HR kind of trained trainer where I've come up in an organization, have spent my entire career in HR and been in that function. I have actually been the leader on the other side of the table where I've led teams and understand the pains of, promoting people when they're not ready to lead and some of those other issues that come up with people management. And so that's what I sell them on, that I'm the right choice for them. Interesting. Is there ever, when it comes to diversity inclusion, this is just a a subject that I find so interesting. So is it ever, so for instance, we have right now, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter movement and it's, and it's, you know, it's, it's huge, at least in this country, maybe even internationally, but certainly in the U.S., is there ever an instance where, let's say, for instance, there's a, a, a faction of, the, of a company that is very much on board with the, with the Black Lives Matter message, but then there's another faction of the company that's on board with the more, I guess, all lives matter message. Is there a way for those two factions, I guess, to coexist in, in, in a way that makes the company inclusive? Because one group could argue that, you know, for instance, the Black Lives Matter movement says if you're not on board with our message, you're not inclusive of us. And the other group can argue that all lives matter movement say, if you're not on board with our message, you're not inclusive of us. So how can companies kind of navigate those, I guess, those two factions? Yeah, there are lots of uh, trainings out there that are being deployed as a result of the racial tension that's, that's going on. I think it has a lot to do, depends on the culture of the organization and the leaders buy-in. I work with an organization now, the National Center for Women in Information Technology. So although it, it looks to build inclusive, more inclusive work cultures for women. The tools that they deploy are applicable across all organizations. And one of the things that, that they talk about is understanding each other. So understanding the, the different points of view, but also um, building um, a, a work culture where everyone, despite of how their, their um, feelings or their, views may be, but it's a place that is all welcome. So I think you're always going to have an organization that has people who have different points of view. That's actually a good thing. It's only when it becomes in a fact that people will say, you can't play here because you feel different than I do. Um, I don't necessarily need you to think just like me, but I need for you to respect the fact that my point of view is valid and it comes from my point of view. Um, so I think that with, with organizations that are very split and it's causing a lot of tension, working with um, um, outside firms or, or companies to help open the dialogue, because that's the part that uh, is, is missing, even if you look flip on the TV today, is having an open dialogue so that we can get to a place that we build consensus across the issues. 
Otherwise, you have people over here and people over here, and they continue to go back and forth and back and forth, but we don't find our commonality between um, those two very distinct feelings across. So I know I didn't directly answer your question, like what's the fix? I think it's much more complex than just, let me send you through a training, let you check the box and let you say that you have been trained and now the organization is going to be fixed. It, it, it doesn't take that way. It takes buy-in from leadership. It takes changing a work culture, changing how we talk to each other. And all those things are involved in building a more inclusive work culture where the point of views of everyone is welcome, but not in a way that it makes people feel alienated. Yeah, for sure. When it comes to just presenting in, in, in front of people, since I, you know, I, I know that you do trainings and obviously you have to, to talk to these people just doing your presentations. Is that, as public speaking in general, is that something you've always been good at or is it something you had to, to get better at, at over time? Mm -hmm. And if so, what'd you do to get better at it? Are you kidding? When I was speaking in, and I remember in grad school, I, my hands were so sweaty and I would have to wipe them off because I would be so nervous with it. Uh, I say you have to keep doing it. Um, recording yourself, all those kind of things where you record yourself, you hear, and actually I hate watching myself after I speak or, or record, but I, but I do it all the time, even down to recording two minute videos. Um, they may be uh, promotional videos or uh, inspiring videos that I w maybe want to put out. But I've taken classes, like, like many people, um, speaking classes and things like that. I have, um, uh, and this was even before I spoke on stages and things like that, but being able to hear my voice, understanding how to project it are, are important, understanding how to storytell um, so that you can engage uh, listeners while you're speaking and some of those. So I think there are some natural skills that come that, that I probably already had. But I think it wasn't until I made the decision that that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to engage people more passionately through what I had to say that I began to focus on it. Um, in the beginning, I wrote a lot of things down, everything, like scripted speech <laughs> in the beginning, until I got to the point that I was very comfortable being able to speak from talking points. Um, but I think it was very much, for me, it, it was very much uh, a trial and error to kind of find um, a place. And I'm still growing. Uh, even though I do it um, fairly often, I'm still growing in that capacity. Oh, for sure. Yeah, we're always, was it practice makes progress, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. when, it comes, when it comes to the presentations that you do, do you have a process for putting them together? And if so, what is it? Um, and ask that question again. You said process? To yeah, process for putting your presentations together. What is it? Uh, you mean my creative process? Yeah, so, you know, you, you know, you have a, a presentation to do. Do you have any kind of, I'm going to do this first and that, and then, you know, the, the next thing after that, or is it kind of just a free, yes. free flowing kind of thing? Well, I, I think it depends on the kind of presentation. If I'm using slides, I'm very visual. Um, so if I'm using a slide deck, a lot of times I'll start with graphics and pictures. They help me build a story around it. I have a whiteboard. I'm sitting in my office now. I have a whiteboard over to the side. Sometimes I'll just draft uh, some things out on the whiteboard to kind of uh, help pull thoughts together. Um, I wish it always started with the beginning and always went to the end. Sometimes it doesn't work like that. Sometimes I'll get an idea that I know is supposed to be a part of it. But it's not the beginning and it's not the end. So I'll stick it in the middle and I'll build the build out what I'm going to talk about around that that central thought. 
Um, so I don't think it follows, but I think the part that's consistent between all three is the fact that I have to be very visual with it. So whether it is putting it on a PowerPoint and pictures and, and um, some kind of graphic, or if it's putting it on a whiteboard or on the back sheet of a piece of paper, um, there's, a, there's an ideation process that I go through that is very visual. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting, pro that's a cool process, I think, to have. I know you mentioned <laughs> that, you'd mentioned that you know, when you were in grad school, your hands would get sweaty before you, you gave a presentation, mm -hmm. you have to wipe them off. Yeah, I used to have that, uh, I, used to, well, I shouldn't say we used to, I, that still happens to me from time to time as well, especially if I yeah. actually care about what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> do you- Butterflies. Do you, yeah, all of that. So, you know, mm -hmm. do you ever get, I guess, do you get nervous before giving presentations? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? Yeah. Uh, um, mantras, whatever mantra uh, comes to my mind, uh, affirmations, strong ones. Um, I, I have some that I, I constantly tell myself, uh, whether it be a scripture that is close to my heart. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthen me, uh, which is out of Philippians. Um, I'll say that. But there are things that I do, positive self-talk to kind of get myself in the rhythm. And I do have a funny little dance that I do, but not everybody's seen that one. <laughs> so especially if I'm getting ready to go out, um, I did a um, keynote for a women's, women's conference uh, a few years ago. And I was back in the green room. I was by myself and I had been mic'd up, but the mic wasn't on yet. And the nerves was just swelling up uh, to the point that I was like, oh, my God, what is the first thing I'm supposed to say when I go out there? You know, all that kind of stuff. And it was lights and it was it was it was very fancy, as <laughs> I can say. And I did my little my little dance that I do to kind of get myself in a groove uh, uh, and to be very focused before I kind of walked out there and uh, could deliver the message. But yeah. Uh, I think it depends. Yeah. I still get nervous. I still get butterflies, especially if I'm truly excited about something. So if I'm excited, yeah, you probably could catch me dancing in the back. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this has all been really interesting. So, so for people that are, so for people that want to get better at, at public speaking, you, you've offered some, some, some tips that they can use, you know, practicing and, and, and having a mantra could be helpful. Perhaps a funny dance. Are there any other <laughs> are there any other tips that you could offer somebody who wants to become more effective in public speaking? Oh my gosh, watch watch some of the greats um, do it. I think there is a um, misconception that people think that they have to be perfect. But if you watch some of those great communicators, like President Barack Obama, Les Brown. And, and some of those ones that when they get their message across will have you like glued to the television set, just kind of watching it. Watch some of those, see how natural they are. Because I think everyone has a unique style and, uh, and it has to do with their personality. And so I think it's not that you emulate them, but be inspired by them because they're so different. If you watch just those two examples speak, you'll see how people's personality can be reflected in the way they speak. So be you. That's my biggest thing. Be you. Absolutely. Well, this has been really interesting learning more about you, Dr. Andrew Bones-Jones. So how can people get in touch with you? Yes. Uh, follow me on social media. Um, you can go to LinkedIn, um, Instagram, all of them on LinkedIn under my name, Dr. Andrea Bowens-Jones on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I'm Dr. Andrea 
and then IDG uh, vision uh, next to it. Oh no, just IDG, sorry, <laughs> with it. Uh, but do visit my website. I have new things coming out all the time. And that is idgvision.com. I have a new mastermind series that's rolling out in November, October, late October, early November called Slaying the Invisible Dragons. So for those people that have some fears and they want to walk into 2021, whether they want to be uh, stage speakers or something else, you got to slay those dragons before you get there. And so I invite them to kind of join and go to my website to find out more information about that program. Yeah, hopefully by 2021, people will be able to walk onto stages, but I guess yes. we'll see. It could be <laughs> a virtual stage. <laughs> For sure. Well, everybody, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil mm -hmm. Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. Teach the Geek to Speak is the first course. It's a course on public speaking. And you can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, please take care and stay safe. Thanks, Dr. Bye -bye. Andrew Bonjon. Bye. Have a great week. Bye.